Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We pick up our story as Shelley Shannon calmly walks towards Dr. George Tiller's 1989 Chevy Suburban. Tiller has had a long day working at Wichita Abortion Clinic. He wants to get home to his family and has no time or tolerance for abuse from protesters, who are now a permanent fixture outside his practice. Tiller spots a woman approaching his car, presumably to hurl abuse at him through the window, and he flips her the middle finger. It's a microaggression which demonstrates just a fraction of the rage and frustration he feels. The pair eye one another, unblinking. Then the woman reaches into her handbag, not once breaking her stride towards Tiller's car. Deftly, she pulls out a black 32 caliber handgun. And before Tiller can register what is happening, the woman has fired six shots in his direction. From what the story sounds, you're listening to Crosshairs. In each episode, you'll be immersed in some of the most significant and shocking assassination attempts and successes in human history. From meticulously planned hits to killings gone wrong and the moments in time which led to murder. So train your ears and listen as we walk you towards the moment where victim and assassin collide. This is Crosshairs, Episode 6, George Tiller, Part 2. Tiller feels searing pain in both of his arms. He can smell smoke. And as he looks down at himself, he realizes he's covered in blood and broken glass from the car's shattered window. He frantically revs the Chevy's engine, preparing to accelerate towards his attacker. But as she calmly raises the gun again, pointing it directly at him and showing no intention of moving out of the car's path, Tiller decides on another course of action, one which probably saves his life. Ducking out of the car, keeping his body low, he staggers back to the clinic without giving Shannon a clear line of sight to his body. Tiller's staff rush around their employer, whose bright red blood is dripping all over the clinic's floor. As some of them begin to patch him up, one of the nurses runs to the window of the clinic in time to see Shannon, the gun concealed in her handbag once again, coolly climbing back into her car. As she drives away, the nurse jots down the license plate, ready to hand it over to the police. 
stitched up and no longer shaking, Tiller is steadfast about what will happen next. Despite the stern warnings from his staff, he refuses to take any time off. He will not be kept from his clinic. So that evening, around the same time police are arresting Shelley Shannon at her home address, George Tiller is preparing for work the following day, as normal. When Shannon is arrested, a copy of Life Advocate magazine, an anti-abortion publication, featuring an article about Tiller, the Wichita killer, is found in her possession. A subsequent investigation finds a laundry list of anti-abortion-related activity connected to Shannon. She had first been arrested for blockading a clinic in 1988, then picked up for trespassing, breaking and entering, as well as arson in the intervening years. She is sentenced to 11 years in prison for her attempt on Tiller's life. And the incident prompts the Clinton administration to look into anti-abortion organizations for evidence of a conspiracy to stop the work of abortion clinics by murdering doctors. But on the flip side, the much darker flip side, Shelley's attack on Tiller brings her a lot of admiration in the more extreme corners of the anti-abortion movement. She is talked up on message boards, receives fan letters, and is even visited in prison by her supporters, one of whom was a man named Scott Roder. Roder grew up in Topeka, Kansas, not far from where Shelley Shannon was later imprisoned. His father, John, who battled what his family described as a combination of manic personality disorder and schizophrenia all his life, struggled to hold down a job. As a high school student, Scott started to show signs of the same mental health issues that plagued his dad. He was placed in an institution where physicians assessed that he was exhibiting early warning signs of schizophrenia. When Scott emerged a few years later, he swore off the medication he'd been taking. It didn't agree with him. In 1983, Scott, now 25, met a woman named Lindsay Roberts. They started dating, and three years later, they got married. Lindsay soon became pregnant, giving birth to their son, Nicholas. She had a degree in elementary education, but stayed home to look after their child. Meanwhile, Scott was bouncing from job to job. A stint in a Kmart here, a few months with a stationary company there. Soon, Lindsay had to step in. And for a time, she worked from home as a telemarketer to support her young family, while her husband sat slack-jawed for hours on end, watching televangelists from the comfort of the couch. Looking for solutions to his unsteady income problem, Scott attended an anti-tax seminar in Kansas City, which laid out why collecting federal and state income taxes was illegal in America. He returned home to Lindsay elated, saying he'd found a solution to all their monetary woes. When she heard his proposition, her heart sank. Scott's embrace of the anti-tax movement was the start of a slippery slope towards fringe politics and religious fanaticism. Lindsay saw it coming and kicked Scott out of the house, hoping he'd reassess his priorities. That didn't happen. Instead, Scott linked up with a woman who was a staunch anti-abortionist. Scott and his new partner came to visit Nicholas, and to Lindsay's horror, the pair showed her five-year-old son graphic images of fetuses, whilst railing against the sin of abortion. 
she quickly kicked them out. Wanting her son to have both parents in his life, Lindsay tried to make things work with Scott. He moved back into the house and was on his best behavior, but predictably, he soon reverted to type. By 1994, Scott began socializing with members of Kansas militia movements. Anti-government rhetoric seeped into his life bit by bit. Eventually, he stopped drinking tap water, convinced it would give him cancer, and he was certain that the FBI had tapped his phone. In the aftermath of Waco, in which 76 members of the Branch Davidians died following an extended siege with the FBI, Scott doubled down on his paranoid tendencies. He began associating with members of the Free Men Movement, a group which didn't recognize the government and believed themselves to be unbound by any related laws and regulations. The group were based on a farm in Montana, which they referred to as the Justice Township, a township which found itself in an 80-day siege with the FBI in March 1996. The following month, Rhoda was pulled over in Topeka, Kansas, for driving with an improper license plate, which read, Sovereign Private Property, Immunity Declared by Law, Non-Commercial American. After searching his vehicle, police discovered bomb-making materials, including gunpowder and a homemade fuse. Scott had been planning on using them to sabotage an empty abortion clinic at night. He was arrested and received 24 months probation. He was forbidden from associating with any violent anti-government organizations. Unsurprisingly, Rhoda failed to comply with the terms of his probation, and he soon ended up in jail after failing to pay social security taxes. Lindsay took this opportunity to file for divorce from her husband, winning sole custody of their son in the process. Isolated from his family after his release from prison, Scott once again found friends on the fringe, this time becoming involved with the Embassy of Heaven Church. The EHC combined Rhoda's two passions, religion and a rejection of worldly governments. Now only able to see his son during supervised visits, he wrote him letters regularly, detailing his issues with the long arm of the government and his disgust at abortion, a practice he felt was the most profound evidence of a country that had moved away from God's light. Here was a man, now on the verge of plummeting into total darkness. Tiller's face loomed large from the wanted poster. Just one of a dozen stuck to the lamppost he passed on his way to work. The others portrayed the faces of fellow physicians from the area. Tiller pulled them down, but he knew there would be more there tomorrow. These posters offered cash rewards for information that could result in the loss of his and his peers' medical licenses. One bore the slogan, an equal opportunity executioner. In the spring of 1994, Congress made it a crime to block access to abortion clinics. But this did little to stop the anti-abortionists. If anything, they became more inventive with their tactics. One person who refused to be deterred was Paul Hill. Hill was a minister and a prominent anti-abortion activist 
who regularly protested outside of the ladies' center in Pensacola, Florida. Standing outside, he'd loudly shout, Mommy, don't murder me, at any woman who passed through the gates. Police were called, but no arrest was made. The next day, Hill returned to the clinic, this time armed with 22 white wooden crosses, which he planted in the ground near the clinic and began accosting any woman who entered the building, trying to dissuade them with anti-abortion literature. A police officer arrived on the scene and ordered Hill to remove the crosses, which he did. But oddly, he wasn't asked to leave. Just before 7.30 that morning, Dr. John Britton arrived at the clinic in a car driven by his bodyguard. Britton's wife, Jane, was with him. Hill approached the vehicle and fired on it twice from close range with a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun, killing the doctor and his bodyguard and wounding Jane. He then placed his weapon on the ground and waited to be arrested. Hill was tried in federal court, but his lawyers led with the so-called necessity defense contending that their client had killed, but had done so to prevent the greater crime of abortion. Dr. Britton had been making weekly flights to the Pensacola Clinic from his home base in Fernandina Beach. He was carrying on the work of his predecessor, Dr. David Gunn, who was murdered by an anti-abortion extremist just a year and a half earlier. Hill was ultimately sentenced to death by lethal injection and was executed on September 3rd, 2003. After Britain's murder, Tiller, who was clearly first on the anti-abortion hit list, had federal marshals assigned to him for his personal protection for over two and a half years. And in that time, the threat did not subside. Fox News launched on October 7, 1996. Described as a conservative alternative to the rest of the available news media, before long, the channel, owned by media mogul Rupert Murdoch, was reaching 10 million American homes. With it came a new generation of conservative media stars, the biggest of which was Bill O'Reilly. A broadcaster who had worked at both CBS and ABC News, his show for Fox, the O'Reilly Factor was a combination of news and analysis, which at its peak attracted 3.3 million viewers each weeknight. His outspokenness and confrontational interview style was applauded by many. His remit seemed to be to express the nation's outrage rather than objectively report the news. And in George Tiller, Bill O'Reilly had found his boogeyman. Throughout the 90s, the protests outside Tiller's Wichita clinics continued. Demonstrators would often follow patients to their homes after clinics, slipping anti-abortion literature under their doors. Some were photographed as they came and went, the images posted online in an attempt to shame them. The protesters had even set up an office of their own in the building next to Tiller's clinic. The Choices Medical Clinic offered a 4D sonogram free of charge to any woman who wanted to come in and discuss their options. No appointment required. In 2002, Operation Rescue, the organizers of the Summer of Mercy, moved its headquarters to Wichita 
and began a vigil outside WHCS that carried on for 1,846 days. The demonstrators didn't confine themselves to the clinic. Also camping outside Tiller's church during Sunday services, where they would park trucks displaying graphic images of aborted fetuses whilst yelling at members of the congregation that there was a murderer in their midst. A number of people left in response to the harassment, but the church's leadership stood by Tiller and his family. Failing to make any meaningful headway with their protests, the anti-abortion movement shifted the battlefield inside the courtroom. Phil Klein, a lawyer and a proud anti-abortionist, was elected Kansas Attorney General in 2002. One of his campaign promises was to put an end to the work of George Tiller. Shortly after taking office, he launched an investigation into abortion practices at WHCS. Its basis was centered around an update to Kansas legislature. Kansas law allows abortions after a fetus can survive outside the womb only if two independent doctors agree that it's necessary to save a woman's life or prevent substantial and irreversible harm to a major bodily function, a phrase that's been interpreted to include mental health. Prosecutors alleged that Tiller had received second opinions from a doctor who was essentially an employee of his and not independent as the law required. Klein's crusade against Tiller caught the attention of TV anchor Bill O'Reilly, who, taking up a long-established chant of the anti-abortion mob, began referring to the doctor as Tiller the baby killer on the air. Between 2005 and 2009, Tiller was brought up in 29 individual episodes of The O'Reilly Factor, where he was likened to Hitler, Stalin and Mao. The legal attacks on Tiller reached a crescendo in 2006 following the death of a patient named Kristen Gilbert. Gilbert, who had Down syndrome, passed away two days after an abortion at Tiller's clinic. She was 19 years old and she'd been raped by an unknown male and become pregnant. After much debate, her family brought her to the WHCS in January 2005 when she was 28 weeks pregnant. During her treatment, a tear was discovered in her uterus. The tear was sutured and she was diagnosed with dehydration. The following morning, Gilbert fainted. She was rushed to Tiller's clinic where her heart stopped. She was transported to a nearby hospital where she passed away from systemic organ failure. Gilbert's tragic passing was something her family wanted to keep as private as possible, but she was ultimately used as a political football when Operation Rescue filed a complaint against Dr. Tiller with the Kansas Medical Board. An investigation into the matter was opened. It absolved Tiller and his staff of any wrongdoing. By the mid-noughties, Scott Roder has found a new community, this time an online one. He begins to spend hours on the internet under the name Servant of Messiah, and he speaks to people who share his beliefs about taxes, stem cell research, and Dr. George Tiller. On one site, he likens the doctor to the notorious Auschwitz physician, Joseph Mengele. On another, he writes in all caps that Tiller must die publicly. Gradually, Tiller becomes the lens through which Rhoda focuses all his frustrations with his country and, by extension, his life. When he isn't calling for the Wichita doctor's head online, 
he's demonstrating at his clinic. And when he isn't demonstrating at the clinic, he's circling closer to Tiller's home life. Rhoda makes his first trip to Reformation Lutheran Church, Tiller's place of worship, in August 2008. He attends a service with his 9mm handgun concealed on his person in a shoulder holster. He weighs up the various ways he could bring about an end to the doctor's life, running him over with a car and shooting him from a distance with a sniper rifle, perhaps. But the various security measures Tiller has accumulated over the years make them too risky. No, it will have to be in the church, he decides. On the 18th of May, 2009, Rhoda drives to a pawn shop in Lawrence, where he picks out a semi-automatic 22 caliber pistol. He can't take it with him there and then. He has to wait for the mandatory background check. Luckily for Rhoda, his previous convictions do not appear. The discovery of explosives in his vehicle had been overturned on appeal when the court ruled that he'd been the victim of an illegal search. Tiller's day-to-day -day comings and goings are well documented amongst the anti-abortion brigade. They know what time he leaves his home in the morning, when he finishes work, and where he worships. On Sunday the 24th of May, Rhoda makes his way to Reformation Lutheran Church at 7601 East 13th Street for the 10 a.m. service. Along with his newly purchased handgun, he carries a well-thumbed Bible. Rhoda has previously made several reconnaissance visits to Tiller's church. He knows that the congregation used the smaller foyer to come and go, rather than the larger double doors at the main entrance. He also knows that Dr. Tiller would be acting as an usher for the month of May, handing out programs to his fellow worshippers between 9.30 and 10 a.m. What the anti-Tiller Whisper Network had failed to realize, however, is that on May 24th, Tiller is almost 1,500 miles away in Orlando, He'd taken his family to Disney World. Frustrated that he isn't in the same state, let alone the same church as his target, Rhoda stays for the service. When the collection comes his way, he drops a handwritten note that reads, Do you believe in taxes? Into the plate. It's an odd move for a man who should be trying to keep a low profile. The following Saturday, Rhoda drives to Tiller's clinic at six in the morning. As he makes his way to the locks to glue them shut, he's spotted by a member of staff who chases him off. As he races to his car, he shouts abuse at the woman, calling her a baby killer. The make and model of Rhoda's car, a 1990 blue Ford Taurus, his license plate and his physical description, are passed on to the FBI. Rhoda drives from the clinic to Lawrence. He arrives at the pawn shop 15 minutes before opening to make sure he is first in line. At 9 a.m., he collects the weapon, along with two boxes of ammunition. His next stop is his brother David's home on the outskirts of Topeka. The siblings aren't exactly close and haven't seen much of each other in recent years. David is aware of his brother's strong political and religious beliefs and has taken to avoiding those conversation topics altogether. One thing they do have in common, however, is an affinity for firearms. The pair go out into the woods next to David's home to give Scott's new purchase a test drive, firing dozens of rounds before the 22 jammed. Not ideal, Scott thought to himself. The brothers drive to the nearby High Plains gun shop in Topeka, 
where an employee tells them the gun is dirty and dry and suggests Scott pick up some new ammunition as well as a can of oil. He says goodbye to his brother in the car park and begins driving south to Wichita. But several times during the drive, he pulls the car over and fires several rounds into the ground to make sure the gun is working correctly. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When he reaches Wichita, Rhoda makes a beeline for the Reformation Lutheran Church, arriving in time for the 5.30 p.m. service. Like before, he enters the foyer with his Bible in hand and his gun in his pocket. He scans the church for Tiller, but once again, to his intense frustration, he sees no sign of the doctor. That evening, the church is conducting a special ceremony in Swahili to celebrate Pentecostal weekend. There are more than 50 people in attendance. Pastor Kristen Nietzel leads the service. Shortly after it starts... Rhoda stands up and leaves. Neitzel notices him go. She and the other pastors are very familiar with their congregation. And due to the protests that started when Tilla joined the church, she knows to be on the lookout for unfamiliar faces. Rhoda has left behind an offering envelope on which she'd written a question, inquiring if the church is organized under the 5013C tax code. Through a church window... Nietzsche watches as Rhoda drives away. That evening, Rhoda stays at the Garden Inn and Suites on Kellogg Corridor. He pays in cash. After checking out his room, he gets back into his car and drives around the local area, making a mental map of his fastest route out of the city. He eats and returns to the Garden Inn, changing into pajamas and switching on the History Channel. The following morning, Rhoda oversleeps, barely making it to the Reformation Lutheran in time for the 10 a.m. service. He enters the church and sits down in an aisle seat near the rear of the building. George and Jean Tiller have taken separate cars to church this morning. Jean leaves before her husband, getting there early for choir practice. In the half hour leading up to the 10 a.m. start, Reformation Lutheran Church is its usual hive of Sunday morning activity. Parishioners gradually fill up the adjacent car park, greeting one another and exchanging pleasantries as they filter into the sanctuary. 
Rhoda backs into his parking space, ensuring he's able to flee the scene with minimal fuss. Upon arrival, he looks around the foyer, where he expects to see Tiller handing out church programs. But, yet again, there is no sign of the doctor. Concerned he's going to come up empty-handed once more, Rhoda takes a seat at the rear of the sanctuary. He scans the area and sees Jean Tiller in the choir loft. His heart starts to beat faster. Surely if Tiller's wife is here, the doctor must be close by, he tells himself. Rhoda looks over his shoulder, back in the direction of the exit to the foyer. Suddenly, a familiar face pops the head into the sanctuary. It's Dr. George Tiller. Rhoda leaps to his feet. Just before 10 a.m., a woman named Kathy Wagner, accompanied by her 18-year-old daughter Alison, enters the foyer and chats briefly with Tiller and Hopner. Kathy is an active member of the parish, regularly hosting bake sales to raise money for the church. She has a sale planned that day for after the service and is setting up by the far wall when Hopner dims the lights to signal for everyone to take their seats. Suddenly, Kathy hears a loud pop. She turns in the direction of the sound and sees Dr. Tiller on his back as Gary Hopner starts to run towards the exit in pursuit of another man. Thinking Tiller has simply fallen over, Kathy tells her daughter to help him up. It isn't until she sees the pool of blood forming around the doctor's head that she realizes something far more serious has occurred. Kathy runs into an office adjacent to the foyer and grabs the nearest phone, dialing 911 with shaking hands. Gary Hopner sprints after Scott Rhoda into the church's car park. I've got a gun and I'll shoot you, shouts Rhoda. Hopner stops in his tracks, as keen as he is to take down the man who has murdered his friend. His thoughts turn to his wife and the danger he'd be placing himself in if he carries on his pursuit. Instead, he runs to his truck, where he's left his cell phone. He dials 911 and asks for an ambulance and police. Another churchgoer, Keith Martin, is sipping coffee in the foyer when the gunshot goes off. Glancing out the window, he sees Hopner in pursuit of Rhoda. Martin races outside, coffee in hand. As Rhoda approaches his blue Ford, Martin stands in front of the vehicle. How could you do that? he asks. He's a murderer, Rhoda replies, before getting into the car and starting the engine. Martin doesn't budge. Move, Rhoda shouts, raising his gun and aiming it at Martin. Move or I'll shoot you. Martin reluctantly steps aside. As Rhoda pulls away, Martin raises his hand and throws his plastic cup into the open driver's window, dousing the shooter with hot coffee. Thornton Anderson, another parishioner, is late for church that day. He has just switched off his engine as Rhoda exits the church. Stepping out of his vehicle, he hears Hopner shouting, Get his license number! Rhoda exits the car park close to where Anderson is standing, near enough for Anderson to get a good look at his number plate. Back in the foyer, Paul Riding, a churchgoer and a veterinarian, examines Tiller. The doctor had been shot just above his right eye, the bullet wound surrounded with powder discharged from the pistol that was pressed against his head. Riding attempts mouth-to-mouth -mouth without success. He checks Tiller's pulse and passes his hand in front of his eyes, hoping for a corneal response. Tiller shows no vital signs. During the commotion in the car park, 
An usher pulls Pastor Lowell Mickelson away from the pulpit and quietly informs him that Tiller has been shot. Not wanting to frighten his parishioners, who are already beginning to whisper amongst themselves, the pastor decides to carry on with the service. <whistles> Suddenly, a woman's scream is heard in the foyer. The music stops. A few people rise from their seats. At the front of the sanctuary, an assistant pastor attempts to keep the peace, informing the congregation that there's been an incident, but asking them all to remain calm and to stay seated. The church begins to quiet down when suddenly the foyer doors fly open and a woman can be heard screaming, George, George, George. Everyone in the church knows the voice. It's Jean Tiller. Officer Eric Landon of the Wichita Police Department arrives at Reformation Lutheran Church at 10.07, less than four minutes after Kathy Wegner's initial 911 call. He enters the foyer where a crowd of about 15 parishioners are standing. Most of them are gathered near the crumpled figure of Dr. George Tiller. Landon assesses the scene and calls in a code blue, meaning near death. He separates Paul Riding, who is still trying to revive Tiller, from the doctor and escorts Jean into a nearby room whilst he secures the scene. The paramedic arrives soon after, and at 10.13, George Tiller is declared dead. Scott Roder has taken the rock road out of Wichita and is now driving north towards Highway 254. He's covered in coffee stains following his encounter with Keith Martin in the car park, and the skin on his legs feels hot and tight. A description of Rhoda's vehicle has been relayed by a dispatcher to the wider Wichita police, as well as law enforcement in Kansas, Oklahoma, and Missouri. But a radar detector in Rhoda's car allows him to keep abreast of any police activity. He ditches his gun in Burlington, wrapping it in cloth and burying it in a dirt pile near a car park and he listens intently to the radio as he drives, hoping to hear confirmation of Tiller's death. He's growing concerned. What if he'd failed to deliver a kill shot? What if the bullet had also hit somebody else? For Scott, the morning's shooting felt like something he'd been building up to for a long time, the culmination of years of work protecting the rights of the unborn. He can't bear to think about falling at the final hurdle, and the longer he drives without news of Tiller's death, the more anxious he becomes. Deputy Sheriff Andrew Lento is on patrol outside of Kansas City when the call comes across the wire about Scott Roder and his 1993 blue Ford Taurus. At 12.45, while parked on the center median of the I-35, he sees the vehicle approaching. After confirming the license plate, he informs dispatch that he's made a positive ID and then he stealthily joins the traffic behind the Ford. Lento pulls Rhoda over just outside Gardner, Kansas. Using a loudspeaker and with backup from fellow officers, Lento instructs Rhoda to raise his hands, exit the vehicle, and lie down on the ground. They bundle him into the back of the squad car, where they inform him he is under arrest for the murder of George Tiller. The words wash over Rhoda like a wave. He's instantly filled with relief. He had achieved what he set out to do. And to him, that's all that mattered.
After Rhoda's arrest, the media's post-mortem of George Tiller's murder began. Who was to blame? Many felt the religious right as well as TV personalities like Bill O'Reilly had a degree of responsibility. Fox News's biggest star rubbished any such allegations, deeming them spurious at best. In the days after Tiller's death, U.S. Marshals were deployed to abortion clinics across the country in an effort to beef up security and protect providers. Dr. Warren Hearn, who'd been banging the drum about anti-abortion extremism for years, called Tiller's murder the inevitable consequence of more than 35 years of constant anti-abortion terrorism, harassment, and violence. As for Rhoda, he was charged with first-degree murder and placed in solitary confinement in Sedgwick County Detention Facility. Instead of being hailed a hero as he'd hoped, the anti-abortion movements he'd associated with were quick to distance themselves from him. Back in Wichita, a vigil was held for Tiller in Reformation Lutheran Church. Satellite ceremonies were held in 45 different states. The following morning, members of his congregation handed out white carnations at his funeral. A large floral arrangement next to his coffin spelled out the words, Trust Women. Well over a thousand people attended, though not all of them welcome. Members of the Westboro Baptist Church, notorious for picketing the funerals of dead soldiers, arrived at the church with signs that read, God sent the shooter. After the funeral, the press spoke to attendees, civil rights lawyer Gloria Allred amongst them, who when asked about her reaction to Tiller's death said, first we cry and then we fight. After his murder, George Tiller's family made the decision to permanently close his clinic. We're proud of the service and courage shown by our husband and father and know that women's healthcare needs have been met because of his dedication and service. That is a legacy that will never die, they said. It was a heavy blow for the pro-choice movement. At one point, there'd been four abortion clinics in Wichita. The other three had long since closed down beaten into submission by the endless protests. WHCS had been the last one standing. By the time of Tiller's death, roughly 87% of American counties had no access to abortion clinics. Scott Roder's trial began in January 2010. He admitted to Tiller's murder at the outset defending his actions by stressing the necessity, in his view, to prevent further abortions. His defense's goal was to get the jury to convict him of voluntary manslaughter rather than first-degree murder. Voluntary manslaughter is defined as the unreasonable but honest belief that circumstances existed that justified deadly force. If they were successful, Rhoda was looking at four to six years in prison rather than life. The judge ultimately ruled that the jury would not have this option, and after less than 40 minutes of deliberation, they returned a guilty verdict. Rhoda received the maximum sentence available in Kansas for his crime, life in prison, with no possibility of parole for 50 years. In the decade since Tiller's death, the debate over reproductive rights in the United States has continued to rage. The appointment of anti-abortion Supreme Court justices Neil Gorosh, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett 
as well as legislation further restricting access to abortions in a number of states, left many deeply concerned about the future of the right to choose. Millions of Americans' worst fears were realized in June 2022, when the Supreme Court voted to overturn Roe v. Wade, rolling back the clock on a constitutional right that has been in place for almost 50 years. The court's 6-3 ruling has opened the door for individual states to ban the procedure, with seven taking that step with immediate effect. Many more are expected to follow, and likely have done so by the time you're listening to this podcast. In the 26 states across most of the South and Midwest where abortion is expected to become illegal, those in need of an abortion may have to travel hundreds of miles to get one. In Louisiana, doctors can now face up to 15 years in prison for providing an illegal abortion. Whilst in Texas and Oklahoma, people who help someone to receive an abortion, even by simply driving them to a clinic, are now vulnerable to lawsuits. By the time of this podcast's release, George Tiller's home state of Kansas will have voted on reproductive rights, becoming the first state to do so in the aftermath of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. The Kansas Supreme Court ruled in 2019 that the state's constitution guarantees a right to abortion that cannot be overruled by lawmakers. However, should the vote on the amendment to the state's constitution pass, Kansas legislators will have the opportunity to severely restrict access to and outright ban abortions in the state. In 2012, three years after Tiller's clinic shut its doors for what many thought was the last time, it reopened. Julie Burkhardt, an abortion rights activist and longtime associate of Tiller's, purchased the clinic from his family and renamed it after one of the doctor's favorite sayings. Trust women a sentiment that has never felt more vital. Crosshairs is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Jonathan Guy Lewis. Our music is supplied by KPM. Sound design by Tom Bruins. And this episode was written and produced by Jack O'Kennedy. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please give it a rating and review. There's a new episode of Crosshairs every week. And if you can't wait for that, why not check out more What's the Story content at www.whatsthestorysounds.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.